How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Stretch the canvas, brush with madness. Is it sadness or just a show? Then go, 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 go. Then go, 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 go. Then go, 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 go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. That was great. That was great. You know what's great is that we waited till the end of the chorus tonight and go, 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 Dr. Joe. I mean, it's just brilliant, Mark. That means it's going to be an unbelievable show, one of the best we've ever done, I'm guessing. It is one of, it's going to be one of the best because it is so timely. We're talking about COVID. We have Glenn Garrett here, Professor, and Tom. Good to see you, Tom. Would you introduce our guest for tonight? It will be my pleasure. He is the professor of psychology at the State University of New York at New Paltz. He has published over 100 scholarly articles, book chapters, and books. Hobbies include hiking, ice hockey, caving, swimming, and camping. Uh, and last but not least, the lead guitar player for the Hudson Valley's only all-professor punk rock band's questionable authorities. Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Gare. Yeah, Glenn. Welcome, Glenn. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to spending this hour with everyone. Yeah, I am so excited to have you here. Just so people know, Glenn and I met um, at a, uh, a really interesting panel that we did on humor in Upper State New York, near where, where he lives. Uh, and I'm just so glad to have you back, because tonight I really wanted to, to dig into COVID. It is in the news. We all know about it. But the ramifications it has, because, Glenn, can you tell a little, folks, a little bit about what your area of interest is in terms of uh, the, the psychology and social psychology? And explain sure. That. So, um, in 1997, I got my PhD at the University of New Hampshire up in Durham um, in social psychology, and. You know, mostly I was studying the psychology of relationships and intimate relationships. And at some point I became very interested in um, a field that goes by various names, but nowadays we'll usually call it the evolutionary behavioral sciences, which is the idea that to best understand human behavior, any human behavior, we really need to understand our evolutionary origins or evolutionary history. Um, so it's kind of like, let's step back and ask, why did this evolve in the first place? Um, <clears throat> so if we can, as an example, we can understand something like um, human emotion or human affect. Like people smile when they're happy with something. And dogs smile when they're happy with something. And humans actually can understand and connect with a dog smile and, and vice versa. And the evolutionary psychologists will step back and say, well, why is that? So, you know, there was a, a famous set of studies by a guy named Paul Ekman several decades ago where he showed the human smile expressed by people from across the globe 
to one another. And pretty much the very short version of that was it's an expression that is absolutely human universal. I mean, something's human universal that probably means that it had some kind of adaptive benefits in terms of survival and or reproduction. So that's kind of like one simple example, I think, that speaks to the broader field of the evolutionary behavioral sciences. So that's kind of at the core of the work that I do. Yeah, and what's what's so cool about it is that had profoundly influenced the IM because when I was in college way back in the mid-70s, this guy, E.O. Wilson, had just created the field of sociobiology, the idea of the genetics of behavior. And it is now morphed into these different names. But it is pivotal to the IM because the IM is saying, hey, we're just doing the best we can. We're always adapting to the four domains of your home, the social domain, the biological domain, and the IC. How do I see myself? How do I think somebody else sees me? But we're doing the best we can. It doesn't mean we'll get it right. Darwin never said we would necessarily get it right. And the smile is such a perfect example of it because that's the IC domain at play. When somebody's smiling, it is a, a wordless communication, but it's a communication. We get a sense of what that person may be thinking or feeling. That's the IC domain. How do I see myself? How does somebody else see me? So that's part of why I'm so excited to have you here, Glenn, because this, this field has profoundly influenced uh, the way the IM was, was generated and created, and still does. I still believe we're all doing the best we can, that there is no pathology. There is no sickness. We're just trying to adapt. Yeah. And so that's part of why I wanted you here, because we've got this thing called COVID now. Yeah. And how do you fit that into the social social psychology field, evolution psychology? Sure. Well, as I think you know, I've written quite a bit about the psychology of of COVID, and in fact, just today launched a, a large scale study on the personality and social psychology of COVID. We're calling it the COVID personality. Um, interested in this, I'm going to say for two basic reasons. One is because everyone is because this has the capacity to change the entire human existence as we know it, as we've seen. And secondly, I was stuck in bed for two weeks with COVID in early March or actually late March. Um, and it was a pretty scary time, you know, every morning to wake up and be like, oh, I'm here. <laughs> I'm like, this, this is great. You know, um, it was a wicked scary experience. And I became obviously very interested in it. And there are so many psychological angles. I feel like rightfully there's been attention to the vaccine. There's been attention to the biochemistry of it, to the DNA of it, to the path, you know, you know, which species has it gone through um, to the evolutionary history of it. These are all great things, but it, at the end of the day, the coronavirus is dependent on human social behavior. So to some extent, it's a human social behavioral issue. And we're seeing that now in so many ways, you know, people arguing about wear masks or don't wear masks and, and get into big groups or not groups and somehow it's become politicized. And like all of these things are partly they're absolutely fascinating just to, to understand and to see. But they're also problems that we need to deal with 
so that we can create the safest and most healthy environment for all of us moving forward. So I've become extremely interested in the psychology surrounding it. What was it like? What were, what were your symptoms when you realized how did, what happened? Yeah, so we, we maintained classes at the university up until spring break, which I think was the MO of a lot of schools. Um, and I, I have three classes. I had two big events that same week. This is the week before spring break where I met with over 100 people, um, just, you know, big events on campus. And I remember the Thursday before spring break, I was going to miss my students. We were not going to see each other the rest of the semester. We all got together and took a selfie. We social distanced, you know, we kind of were following the guidelines at the point. But that was Thursday. And then on Monday, I didn't feel right. And I started, and what I seem to understand to be ubiquitous is fever. So this has like a million different symptoms and it plays out differently in almost everyone. Um, but I started getting chills and I'm like, I'm perfectly healthy. I've run 11 marathons. I ate well that day. I'm like, I should not be getting chills. And I came home at about five or 6 PM and felt so exhausted, like beyond exhausted. And I was sweating. Um, I went that same day after work. So let's say between about four and five or four and six, I went to the doctor for routine blood work. They couldn't get a lick of blood out of me. And that had never happened to me before. Usually they tell me I have great veins and they told me go to the, the grocery store, drink Gatorade and come back. And I did that. And they still six, seven, eight medical professionals. No one could get any blood out of me. Wow. I'm like, well, that's that's weird. And then I came home and I was shivering and I had a, a about maybe a hundred fever. And, you know, I kind of I don't even know what I attributed it to. But I said, you know, no way is this coronavirus. So the next day I woke up, I, I went to work. I was the only one at work, you know, but I work. That's kind of like my, like, I'm just into it. And I had a project I was working on. And by about noon, I started shivering again and started sweating again. And I'm like, oh, God, this does not seem good. And I came home and then my temperature was 102. And my wife, Kathy, who's very smart, said, this doesn't seem good. Why don't you go into the room and stay there? And I did, you know, we're fortunate enough that I was able to go into, we have a, a bedroom with a bathroom and um, everyone else kind of stayed away. So I was able to quarantine within the house. And it was two weeks that I had 102 fever every single day. Fortunately, I had very mild respiratory symptoms and <clears throat> my daughter got it. Um, she was forced to come back from college in Virginia and she showed very similar symptoms during that same time period. Of course, I was concerned for her. My son and my wife did not show symptoms, thank goodness. And what was interesting, and here's another ubiquitous factor. After the two weeks, once my fever was gone, I felt right again. But there's this post-corona exhaustion that everyone I've spoken to who's had it gets this. And it was at least three weeks and it was like, let's say it's 10 in the morning, I have to take a three-hour nap. It was like just so, it's, I've never had anything like this. It's like my body had worked so hard to fight this thing off that it took another. So I'd say it was like a good five weeks. Um, 
Meanwhile, testing was almost impossible because this was so new. I didn't get tested until maybe three weeks into it, you know, so it was all guesswork up, up until that particular point. Um, so I was kind of just stuck in bed watching Impractical Jokers and reading a book, you know, and taking my temperature every hour and just hoping that the temperature was, was down. And, and like I said, every single time I woke up, Joe, I was like, I'm here, <laughs> you know, at least I'm here. So, right. Right. Yeah. Did you have the, the loss of smell? I didn't have that. Didn't have that. Um, I know that's, it's very interesting because so different people have different symptoms. My daughter had a major GI thing going on. She was nauseous. She was throwing up. Um, and, you know, when you look at the World Health Organization's list of symptoms, it has like doubled or tripled like every week or two, you know. So it's, it really, this thing, it's good at just messing with the human body, you know, and it does it in a variety of ways. And the fact that there are so many symptoms in so many different systems is also a clue as to how this virus is affecting our body. It's, you know, some people think it's, it's affecting what are called the endothelial cells, which are basically blood vessels, which means that, you know, if you've got a blood vessel going anywhere and you have infection there, it's going to affect the end organ of where the blood vessel is supplying. So... It is a very sneaky virus. Yeah, Mark? Yeah, yeah. so, Glenn, so you came down with symptoms right about the middle of March, right at the height of it all, and then right, right up into the middle of April. Were you watching the news and all that while you were laid yes. up and seeing great. all of the chaos? <clears throat> That's a great question because um, I tend to run so busy in my life that watching the news is rare for me and i'm usually the guy that doesn't know there was some terrible thing that happened across the world during those weeks i was watching every single day i was watching donald trump's press conference some days were better than others i was watching andrew cuomo every single day without fail i was reading the world health organization's reports every single day they put out this really detailed situation report and it was just like, holy Jesus, this is a really major, this is not a small thing. Um, you know, so I became very interested in the data. And in, in fact, subsequent to that, I became very interested, or I have become very interested in knowledge about COVID and knowledge about Corona, um, because there's such an, a misinformation thing going on. Um, in fact, I created for Psychology Today what I call the COVID test or the COVID quiz. And it's just a 10-item, multiple choice, completely fact-based. It's not an opinion-based thing. Um, you know, what is the effect of wearing masks on the broader population, you know, where, where masks are being worn? What is the effect of social distancing? How many Americans have been sick? How has this been relative to the flu in the last six months? And what I found is that the number of people that get 100% is very small. Um, very bright people I know who've, who, who are college students. I really was envisioning, I wish, I kind of wish every college student would be able to get 100% before they could come back because they need to know. They need to know how big of a deal this is. They need to know that even though college students generally don't develop strong symptoms, they can carry it, they can distribute it, they can disseminate it. Um, so I became extremely 
So you're exactly right. I became very interested in the data, and I still am. And, and I'm really hoping that, you know, we got to get information out there because especially in the United States, we have been, as a country, very not good at understanding this, dealing with this, and dealing with it systemically from the top down is my, is my understanding. So as you're watching this news, are you going back and forth watching some of the opinions and as well? And what was what do you think that was doing to your immune system as it was stressing you out while watching this? <laughs> yeah, super, inter super interesting question. Um, I got to tell you, I felt it was such a new thing, like you're saying at the time, and no one really knew what to make of it. And should we blame China was one was one big question. Um, it was very stressful. And as we know, stress will affect the immune system. I felt like I was just gaining knowledge. You know, I felt like I was gaining knowledge. And honestly, I, I came out of it okay. So, but yeah, does, does the stress associated with COVID contribute to the adverse effects on the immune system? I actually think it's an empirical question, which is a very good question. Um, just to step back to something else that you'd asked about, Mark, which is has to do with China. One of the things I do in my job is I actually teach in China every summer for about a week or about about 10 days. And I had taught I was planning or I was supposed to teach in China this particular summer. And in the program I teach in, a bunch of the students that I teach in China that people in my school teach there come back to the United States. And these are students that I've become very close with. So there was 13 students from China, you know, from near where the epicenter of it was, near the center of the country. And they were stuck in the United States. They, several of them were not allowed to go back to China. They were not allowed to take classes in the United States. They had to quarantine. These kids were just stuck. You know, these kids were just totally stuck. So they were reaching out to me as like, you know, what do I do? And it was just one of the many faces of the problems, you know, the absolutely horrible situations that have emerged related to this pandemic. So what's so, the COVID personality? Hmm. So that the COVID personality is um, something that we're studying right now, actually. And... I put out a, a hypothesis on psychology today, <clears throat> um, and it's related to another, you know, there's a lot of different things that can hijack the nervous system. Just as Dr. Joe was saying, this thing, and if there's blood vessels, there's COVID, there's effects on the body. Um, and the idea that it can get into the nervous system is not, you know, is not far-fetched whatsoever. And the example that I've thought about um, well, there's two, I guess, two examples I can think, you know, kind of put out there. One is there's research showing that the flu, that the common flu, which comes in various strains, actually hijacks behavior to make people with the flu compared to a comparable control group more likely to seek out social opportunities. So there's a study put out by Binghamton University in 2010 where... They had people, they looked at two groups of people, comparable in terms of age, um, gender demographics. One group had gotten a flu shot, which gives you just a small dose of the flu. 
and the other group that didn't. And the one who'd gotten the flu shot had gone out to parties and had been surrounded in the next three or four days by about four times as many people as people in the other group. <clears throat> and the idea is that the flu, obviously unintentionally, obviously blindly, but the idea is that the flu actually hijacks the nervous system and facilitates social behavior because that is effective at replicating the virus. <clears throat> so I became very interested in that. And then I started thinking about COVID. Um, and I will tell you that I personally identify as an extrovert, um, like, like to be surrounded by people, like social opportunities. You know, I never stay home and read a book because it would bore me to tears, um, ex except when I had COVID. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm, I really consider myself outgoing. I'm like, huh. Like I was surrounded by like 500 people the week before I got the coronavirus. And it got me thinking, I wonder if this stupid virus somehow facilitates behaviors that just like the flu that um, increase social connections between people literally for the effect of getting itself out there. There's another, now this is a bacterium but there's another comparable example, which is found in Toxoplasma gondii. This is something that, um, this is a nasty little bug that <clears throat> gets into a mouse, that gets into a cat, and it can only replicate effectively in a cat's gut. And when it gets into a mouse, when a mouse, and there's experimental research on this, mice usually, if you if you um, present them with the pheromones of cat urine, they'll go to the edges and hide. But a, a mouse that is infected with tox Toxoplasma gondii will actually go right into the middle of a well-lit room, almost like saying, I'm here, come get me. And the cat will come and take it. So it seems to hijack the nervous system to actually facilitate, you know, to benefit the bug, obviously, it's at the detriment of the host and coronavirus man this thing is such a mystery and such a mess i would not be surprised if it has effects on our personality and on our behaviors that have no regard for us but have every regard for replicating itself that is fascinating so in other words you know just like darn was saying everything wants to reproduce this right. is the goal to get your genes into the next generation. So you're thinking that, that the virus actually subverts our social process and makes, like in the mouse example, come get me so that the virus can get into the gut of the cat. That is fascinating. So, so the couple of things, the, the COVID quiz, let's just go back to that for a moment. So how do people access that quiz so they can take it? Yeah, I have it right on my Psychology Today blog. Um, so my blog is called Darwin's Subterranean World. And I'd say I published it about a month ago. So maybe if you go back about five or six posts, you okay. can find it there. And it all not only does it have the questions and the answers, but it has at least one factual citation explaining each particular answer. And I've had a lot of people say that they found it just like really useful. And then the other thing that you're talking about now is the COVID psychology. And, and you've got some blogs or some questionnaires about that too, so some surveys, get people involved. Yeah, yeah. so 
So it completely relates to this issue that we've been, been talking about. And I think a very simple, a very simple version of this might be to think about the trait of extroversion. So extroversion, when you look at basic personality traits, it's usually considered one of the most heritable traits. So there seems to be a genetic component to it. And there's been, in, in the Darwinian literature, there's been a longstanding question mark as to why extroversion comes back each generation as a normal distribution. Um, so in just about every human population that's been studied, extroversion seems to be normally distributed. You have some strong introverts, some very strong extroverts, and you have a normal distribution. Whereas some people are like, well, doesn't extroversion seem more adaptive than introversion? And people have come up with different um, explanations as to why extroversion is not always adaptive. Um, people who are extroverts are more likely to get STDs. They're more likely to get divorced. They're more likely to die by reckless accidents. But my guess, and we're doing a study on this right now to explore this, my guess is no one's looked at it from a step back across large time perspective. My guess is that a pandemic that benefits or a virus that benefits from a lot of social contact wipes out extroverts at a disproportionate rate, which might be one of the reasons that we see introversions benefits kind of indirectly because it's beneficial across large periods of time. So we're doing a study now where we're looking at people who've tested positive for the virus compared to a, a comparable group. We're, we're hoping to get what we call a matched sample design. Um, so people that would be similar in terms of um, age and demographic and socioeconomic status and so forth. Um, but have not or, or feel the best we could do is feel confident that you did not have the virus. You know, it's a hard thing. We can't test everyone. This, the testing itself is already problematic. But we're looking at those two groups. And the, we have a bunch of hypotheses and variables. But the short prediction is that across any demographics, we're expecting extroverts to be more likely to have had the, the virus compared with introverts. Where, where are we at now? We've got this idea that, that the coronavirus may influence our actual social behavior, making us want to be with other people more. Am I missing something here or is that pretty much it? I mean, that's a, that's a working hypothesis. Again, like I said, our, we're currently doing an empirical study now um, out of my university and then also out of Brunel University in London. So we're hoping to get a cross-cultural um, sample going on that, but that that very well might might be one. It's, so there's kind of like two aspects. I know Mark just asked a similar question um, related to that. So um, the hypothesis partly is that a the virus might encourage sociality, but b kind of in addition to that, I would say people who are inherently relatively sociable might be more likely to pick up and spread the virus. It would be really interesting also to see whether what the personality style is for a person who says it's okay to wear a mask and a person who is so resistant to wearing a mask. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of crazy, man. You know, we live in, 
our town, New Paltz, New York, is, you know, like a lot of places in the Northeast and different parts of the country, ex- extremely progressive or, li- or liberal, you might say. But there's been a huge thing on the social media now. There's like three high school kids. And I don't want to name them. And honestly, at the end of the day, I think they're going to look back and, and, and say they made some mistakes. But they are going into the grocery stores without masks. And they're, they're like screaming at the workers. And they're making a huge to-do. And there's videos. And it's on social media. And I'm like, oh, my God. The education is such a problem here. I'm like, this is not a political issue. You know, this, the fact that it's being politicized. I kind of hate to say, but that's a very American thing. Um, I think there are other countries where, well, first of all, in the United States, we have a lower percentage of people who have um, a basic bachelor degree than is true in most other developed countries. We're at about 31%. South Korea is at about 57 or 58% as an example. So we have a lot of people like to understand why a mask is effective. You need to have certain understanding of, you need to understand that there are microorganisms that you can't see or control. Um, you need to understand that there are scientists with PhDs working at the CDC who understand this better than you, and you got to d- defer to authority at least under those kind of conditions. Um, you know, there's certain understandings and basic cognitive skills that, that you need, but I just feel like right now there are so many people who don't have a very basic understanding, people who are putting this as an issue of, individual rights and i'm like it's not an it's it's there there's so much misinformation and it's it's unfortunate because our country's been hit worse than any other country in terms of deaths in terms of mortality injury and it's only going to get worse um so yeah so i think there's a very big education related issue i think it's a political issue too and it should never have become i feel like you know, I don't. I hope it's okay to say that I'm not a huge fan of, of the top level government right now. But if there was ever a time where this there should have been top down, you know, it's now. Um, to say that this is a states' rights issue is stupid because it's not a states' rights issue when it's a health issue. You know, just like the First Amendment says, well, once you started screaming fire in a crowded theater, we're done. You know, I kind of feel like it's it's the same kind of thing. And so, like, once you let one state, because we all travel to different states, that's the nature of the United States of America. Um, universities are all about to go back into session where, you know, my students at the State University of New York are probably going to come from all 50 states, you know, and that's probably true across the country. So they talk about a second spike, um, a second wave and this kind of thing. If there's ever a time when we really could benefit from strong, top-down policy decision-making, I really think the coronavirus is such a great example. And it's unfortunate that we haven't really seen that. You know, I, I want to come back to, to the teaching thing in a moment because this is, you know, a huge national question right now. But before that, um, I just want to clarify about folks who may or may not have the educational capacity. I, I'm not sure that it is always, it's not about intellect, folks. I, I want people to understand that. It's not mm-hmm. how smart you are. Right. Um, that is not the case. And, and the reason why I can say this is because I, I work with a lot of people who, who have developmental challenges, and yet they are 
absolutely terrified to go back to their day programs because they don't know if they're going to get COVID. So it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not saying, well, you're, you're, if you don't put on your mask, you're a stupid correct. That is not what what Glenn is saying at all. Uh, There's something else going on with this about what, I, I think it, it may have to do with, with someone's idea that you can't tell me what to do. Right, right. You know, that I have right. my individuality, I have yeah. my right to do what I want to do. And folks, it is true, you do. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to hurt somebody else when you do that. Right. That's what wearing a mask is about. It's not about protecting you. It's about protecting somebody else just in case and that is something i hope we can all come together with in in one of uh uh, professor gare's uh story uh blogs he he talks about having a common enemy and the coronavirus is this common enemy it doesn't discriminate depending on who you are do you want to can you just pick up on that for a moment about again from a sociobiological social behavior point of view what does it mean if we have a common enemy Sure. So, you know, human social psychology is interesting for various reasons. And one of the things I find very interesting is we evolved in small scale social groups where we were sort of with our own group and maybe hesitant about supporting other groups. And if you look at human social psychology now, you can see that, you know, Yankees fans don't like Boston Red Sox fans and et cetera. You know, but all the research on how to sort of get past that has shown is what you do is you need to create these superordinate goals. Something that, all right. What does that mean? A, what does superordinate mean? Yeah, good question. So superordinate means a goal that is beyond my group, beyond your group. It's a goal that we all will stand for. That we um, share. A goal, a shared goal. It's a, Exactly. It's a shared goal. It's a goal where if we all achieve it, I win and you win, even if we had defined ourselves as being in different groups at a prior point. Um, And I kind of feel like, you know, that phrase, we're all in this together. I mean, the coronavirus is exactly that. The coronavirus is, you know, when, when Boris from the United Kingdom is on a ventilator, that's the biggest evidence or the, you know, clearest exemplar to me that this isn't discriminating based on status, based on wealth, based on demography. You know, anyone can get this. There's nothing going to buffer you from it. Um, this thing is an equal opportunity attacker. And it's it, there's something humbling about it. Kind of, you know, I'm a big fan of believing that all humans are on the same playing field. A lot of times in my writing, I'll say we all have a ticket on the same ride. And the coronavirus is kind of, is kind of shoving that into our face right now. You know, so it really is a common enemy and we all have the same goals here. So that's why I think like things about like arguing about masks and making it political and making it, um, you know, liberals think this and other people think that. I'm like, dude, this is way beyond politics. Let's get beyond politics because we have a common goal and we really need to work together to pursue things accordingly. Right, And and what's fascinating is. What, what the coronavirus is doing is reminding us that we're one group, not yeah. separate groups. There's not an in-group yeah. and an out-group. There's one group that the virus wants to come in. Yeah. 
And yet, at the same time, what's happening in our world is the race issue that is saying, yeah, 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 but, but there are two groups. There is your group and my group. And that's why there's all this stuff. And yet, here's coronavirus. It's saying, no, wait a sec, maybe, maybe we want to rethink that. Maybe it's not based on the color of your skin. It's based on that you actually, everybody has a heart. We all have these same vital organs that can be attacked by the same virus. And that's where I really hope we go. The only concern I have, Glenn, and I want to, want to know what you thought about, think about this. Do we always need to have a common enemy to come together as one group? Mm. What do you think? I think it's a great question. Um, it would be great to say the, the answer is no. But when you look back at the literature and social psychology on in-group, out-group reasoning, it really does seem like some kind of common enemy. Now, maybe it doesn't have to be a common enemy. Maybe it needs to be a common goal. Maybe that's a sort of gentler way to put it. Um, there was a famous study done in the, gosh, I'm going to say 30s or 40s. That was the... Um, Oh, it was called the Robbers Cave Studies, where they they had these kids in camp, and the kids were some kids were on the white team, some kids were on the blue team. They separated the kids out, and the kids were very much showing what we call in-group, out-group reasoning. Um, you know, not liking the kids on the other team, and all that kind of thing. But then the researchers set up situations where everyone had to work together. So to achieve a, a superordinate goal, one example was the bus broke down and they set it up so that everyone had to work together to pull these ropes. You know, these were little kids and, and they were able to sort of be um, essentially fed into this this narrative and, and they bought into the narrative. And once the kids were working together, the bus started to to work again. So it wasn't necessarily a common enemy, but certainly certainly a common goal. I, I like that reframe a lot. I really do. And, and the reason is because that is part of what the I am is saying as well, is we all want the same thing. Right. Just to feel valued in our society. And it gets back to, to what Glenn is talking about. You know, millions of years ago, we weren't the biggest animal, the fastest. You know, we weren't the strongest. We were these small, isolated mammals scurrying around, hoping not to be lunched. And then right. we form these small social groups. And that's when our survival potential increased so dramatically that human beings are everywhere. But to access the protection of that group, the safety of that group, you have to contribute to that group. You have to have value. And that's why I think when one person thinks they are less valued by some other person, it activates the survival response. Yeah. And now... We know that at every and any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. I mean, you know how to do that, folks. You know that you can just say to someone, oh, you're amazing. Oh, that was so great. And you get that rush. They get that rush because yeah. every time you increase somebody else's value, you increase your own value. Absolutely. We all want to feel valuable. So if that can be our common goal, to simply remind each other of our value and become more valuable yourself. That's what the IM is trying to do. 
we're all in this together, as you say. We're all doing the best we can. But if we don't like it, we can change it. And that's what I'm hoping to do because that's adaptation. That's evolution. And just because all this stuff has happened before and we know it, I think that's even more powerful. You can't change something unless you know why it's happening. Right, right. But now we Absolutely. know. Now we know. And COVID, schools are about to open, or maybe. What's going on with your university? Well, my university is probably pretty typical, actually. It's state university, um, part of a bigger system. The system gave us guidelines and said, you know, whatever you do is got to be within these guidelines. Um, I'm going to teach in person. We have the choice. I'm going to teach in person a 36-person class in a room for 250 people. So, you know, it's going to be socially distanced, which is funny because you, the, your first rule as a professor usually is everyone comes sit in the front in the middle, you know, so we feel like a group. So it'll be, it'll be different. Um, but since I've been tested positive for the antibodies, I'm feeling like I, I love teaching in person. You know, this is this is why I got into the work in the in the first place. Um, but faculty are being given the option, and I'm going to say maybe five percent at the most of the classes will be in person, and most of the classes will be online. Um, raises a lot of issues. There are a lot of students who are being forced to live in the dorms, even though they're taking five online classes and would rather be back in Long Island kind of thing. Um, so it's, you know, we're going to look back at this time in history and just be like, you know, we just did anything we could to scrape by. Um, but that's, that's how our university is dealing with it. My daughter goes to the University of Richmond. University of Richmond is having seated classes. If you look at Virginia's data right now, they're not great on the coronavirus. Um, that school has a lot of money. They're going to create additional classes, additional spaces. They're trying to use their resources to be able to pull off doing an almost all seated classes. And seated means in, in person, um, in real seats. And then there's a lot of schools that are saying online only, forget it. We don't want to be risky. So there's there really is a, a diversity of, um, of solutions to this issue, which is, as, as of yet, we don't really know how it's going to go. We don't, but we have some preliminary findings with the schools that have reopened. A lot of people getting sick pretty quickly. Yep. yep. So concerning. Yeah, I, I, I don't get nervous very often. I really don't. This stuff is making me kind of nervous. You yeah, know, same. About going back and starting over, you know, creating another surge. It's going to happen, but hopefully we'll be are, are, are you starting to uh, do some research on the effects of being quarantined also on the people? That is a great question. Um, you know, I've written quite a bit about what we call evolutionary mismatch. Evolutionary mismatch. Mismatch, okay. Basically, the idea that in a lot of ways, our modern lives are mismatched from the conditions that we evolved to exist in. 99% um, of human evolution, human beings lived in nomadic groups in the African plains, in small groups that were capped at about 100 or 150, surrounded by kin. All communication was face-to-face -face communication for almost 
almost the entirety of, of the human experience. Um, so even before COVID, <clears throat> I've become extremely interested. And I recently published a book titled Positive Evolutionary Psychology, which really deals with this issue. You know, <clears throat> we have a mismatched world right now compared to what we evolved to exist in, and that's a problem. And I've got to say, and, and Mark, this goes directly to your question, the quarantine world, talk about mismatch, man. Oh, my goodness. You know, it is mismatched on steroids. And when you have teenage kids that haven't seen friends in months on end, other, other than, you know, seeing them on on Fortnite or, or <clears throat> Facebook, FaceTime or whatever, you know, that's, that's a problem when you have people that are not interacting face to face directly with others whom they've regularly interacted with. Um, that's a problem. So from a social psychological perspective, I think quarantine is very unnatural. And, you know, one thing, and Joe, I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, but one thing I've heard and it resonates with me is that while mental health issues have increased in the last several years in the developed world, quarantine conditions are going to sort of facilitate that that particular pattern, you know, because people are, are kind of running into more mismatch and more problems than they had run into before. So I'd say there's a lot of unnatural conditions that we're running into now, and I do expect some kind of, of long-term effects, to be honest. I think what, what I'd like to hope, uh, and one of my colleagues, Norm Gorin from Riverside Community Care, actually published an editorial on this, is, yes, there is an increase in anxiety and depression and anger, which we have you know, consistently attributed to a mental illness. But the reality is, as part of who we are as human beings, when we're faced with a certain condition in your I am, whether it's in any one of the domains, you respond this way. So what I'm hoping is that this will normalize and destigmatize what we have called mental illness and realize, you know, it's part of who we are as human beings. Let's spend some real time and quality in addressing how we can look at ourselves and feel a little bit better. And that also is where the I am is at. You know, this is not, it's not an unusual response to be more anxious or wish you were more social when you're facing a virus and you got to shut down and be quarantined. Right. It makes sense. So, yeah, there's there's a lot. We're also seeing a lot of increase in uh, in in overdose deaths from uh, substances, and I think part of that is because a lot of folks used to use with each other, and now they're still using but by themselves. Mm somebody can't, can't give them the Narcan to revive them. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a fascinating time in our world. But it is something we, have, we can learn from. We can learn about ourselves and how we want to address this so that I, I really think there's an opportunity for us to, to find that we're one group, one group called humanity. Gosh, I, I really hope that. Joe, I got to say that that is such an inspirational message and to take this situation right now and to, to look at the silver lining and look at the potential growth opportunities, building resilience, building a broader in-group, I mean, to the extent that we can do that and that we as sort of 
a community right now can facilitate that, I think, is really something to strive for. So I'm fully in agreement with you on that. So it, this has just been fascinating. The hour is going by real quick. We've got a couple of minutes left. The IM has two rules. Uh, because everything interconnects, the four domains, your home, social, biological, and IC, small changes can have big effects. You don't need to change everything. A small change can have a big effect. Professor, what small change can you suggest to our listening audience so that they can get through this COVID? Yeah, I think that is such a great question. I think that the human social connection is so essential. And I think that during this time, we need to be resourceful. Um, you know, especially I have teenage kids and you can see kids getting into their devices and getting into their Netflix and sort of losing the connections, stay connected. Whatever the mechanism is, use modern technologies to do that. Make sure to stay connected to people, you know, and be conscious of that because this is a weird time right now and staying connected with people is absolutely essential for everything about the human experience. That's great. We got one minute left. The second rule of the I am, because everybody's interested in what you think or feel about them. You control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you wanna be. Professor Gare, what kind of influence are you hoping to be? I think at the end of the day, I want people to believe in themselves and to believe in exactly what you've been talking about, which is the common human experience and the fact that we truly are all in this together. Great. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Mark, Tom, We'll be back next week. We're going to be talking with Jonathan Kahn, if all goes well, looking again at bias on the brain. It can be very interesting. Glenn Gare, thank you very much. That was uh, that was brain sugar. I like to call it brain sugar when I'm feeding it like that. Like awesome. That was awesome. Well, Mark, thank Joe, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Glenn. Ben Ippetit, take it away.